Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hey everyone, welcome to Gatekeeper. It's a podcast. My name is Jamie Flam. I love you very much. We have a great show ahead. Uh, a phenomenal, uh, emotional conversation with Eric Blake, who is a drug dealer turned comedian who's done a lot of amazing things in the comedy world. And he tells his story about how he got from this life of crime into the world that we know and love of stand-up comedy. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in just a few minutes. In the meantime... I am going to ramble about things I haven't determined yet in a free-flow, stream-of-consciousness fashion. Here to help me on this stream-of-consciousness ramble is my very own producer of Gatekeeper, Andrew Steven. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, Andrew, did you hear the big news? Uh, about Aleppo? No, no, not that news. Oh. Like, entertainment news. Uh, Mc- MacGyver? It's coming back? Yeah. I mean, that's I, that's pretty cool, too. Is that what you were asking? About? No, I wasn't talking about MacGyver coming back. By the way, those posters that are all over L.A., by the way, and they all look like Tim Heidecker from Tim and Eric, as if it's this knockoff Tim and Eric thing uh, with Tim Heidecker as MacGyver. But it's not. It's a different actor. Was it the uh, rumor that uh, Murder, She Wrote was going to be on Game of Thrones? That murder she wrote was going Who's to the be actress from murder Angela she... Lansbury. Yeah, there was a a, a rumor that she was going to be on Game of Thrones for like two episodes. Oh, and no, I didn't hear that. I, I don't watch that show. <sighs> I don't know what the news was. Then. Melissa Villasenor just got cast on SNL, and that's really exciting. You know why? Why? Because I totally know her, man. <laughs> um, I'm actually very excited about it. Melissa has been a regular here at the Improv since I've been here. She's been doing her one-person show in the lab, um, and she's just uh, such a been a part of the fabric of this place. Uh, a regular here at the Improv, if there's even such a thing. There's so few spots, but she's someone I've tried to book a lot, and she's the first Latino cast member on SNL in its history. That's pretty crazy, right? Very. And I totally know her, man. <laughs> uh, but it got me thinking about how unpredictable the path to quote-unquote success is if you're pursuing entertainment or the arts and how, you know, three days ago, she did not know that she was now going to be on the biggest show ever. And how, when you take this path, you just kind of are rolling the dice and you don't know how it's going to play out. The coolest thing about seeing Melissa uh, get this huge, huge opportunity is seeing how hard she's worked and how she's stuck to her guns uh, throughout the last several years. You know, obviously it's probably a pipe dream for most to get on SNL, but I don't know how much she was working specifically to get to this, but she has kept a positive attitude. She's been that cool as fuck I always talk about. She's appreciated every opportunity, very thankful, and she's been humble and worked hard throughout. She hasn't given up. And both those themes of working hard and sort of the unpredictability uh, happen to accidentally, but truthfully tie in really nicely with this interview with Eric Blake. And incidentally, I also totally know Eric Blake, man. So between Eric Blake and Melissa Villasenor, I know some pretty cool people. So that makes me cool by default. Am, am I one of those cool people too, Jamie? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. You definitely are one of those cool people. Thank you. And you are too, listener. I want to make sure you know that you are that cool person too, I hope. And if you aren't cool, be cool. Because there's major success coming your way too if you just work hard. And fucking be cool as fuck. All right. This has become exactly as it was advertised. A rambly ramble. Thanks for helping me get through it, Andrew. Anytime. So with no further ado, a sound effect and then a very inspirational conversation with Eric Blake. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm Jamie Flam. I'm the host of the show and I'm joined right now by the phenomenal, the effervescent, the good smelling, <laughs> Eric Blake. How are you? What to do, Jane? What to do, fam? 
What it do indeed. As I was telling you just moments ago, I, I'm going on like an hour and a half of sleep. Right. Crazy right. neighbors. So um, if I trail off, if I st- stare into an abyss at a certain point, <laughs> um, it's because of that. It has nothing to do with you. No, I understand that, man. Living in Hollywood will do that to you, man. You, 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 it's rare to get, it's so much going on outside your door when you live in Hollywood. It's, it's hard to fall asleep. Oh, you're talking about... Dog neighbors? Dog neighbors, bro. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about the over, I mean, I love dogs, but I'm talking about the people that forget dogs <laughs> are dogs and start thinking that they're human yeah. type of thing. Now, that's cool, but- Is it know, cool? It's, I mean, <laughs> it, it, where's the line? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like four t- pair of tennis shoes for a dog, I think it's crossing the line. Is it crossing the line at four pairs or at one pair or two pair? What? When's that line cross? <laughs> That's right. When the dog is walking like he's stepping in his own shit, it's kind of like a little bit too much. I mean, you know, he's trying to get the shoes off his sure. feet. Like, I just want to walk with my paws type of thing. Naturally. It's crossing the line. Speaking of walking with paws, <laughs> walk us through your career as a, a stand-up comedian. And uh, you're one of the you know, most fascinating characters I've met. And your phone is ringing right I'm now. I'm sorry. I'm I'm unprofessional right now. Let me get let me let me let me get professional. No, we're gonna get through this. Okay, go I ahead. I want to capture this. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, you, you have such a fascinating story oh. uh, on in, in your path to comedy in your career, and I just, I would love to start with that. Oh man, um, my path to comedy. Uh, uh I just want to say a little something before I get started. Where I thought I thought it was something very interesting that just happened. And this is the truth. Um, you know, my mom passed. Yeah. Uh, May, May 28th, something like that. It's been a few months. And we're going through all my mom's things. And my mother was the type of woman that would just, you know, she kept everything, you know. And she was known for keeping all of our stuff from school when we were kids. Seven, I have seven brothers and sisters. And each one of us had a box with all of our things in these box. And I'm going through my box of things that she kept. And there was a... Um, it was a referral slip. That's what we used to get back in the days when we got sent to the principal office and stuff like that. And the progress report mm-hmm. also t- attached was like a, a, a referral slip and a progress report. And this is 1983. I was in junior high. Hope I ain't telling my age, but anyway, um, it was very interesting that what the teacher said in the referral slip, she said that, um, please talk to Eric about um, entertaining other students in class. It's my teacher, Mrs. Roth, mm-hmm. Carver Junior High. Please talk to Eric about entertaining other kids in class. It's becoming a distraction <laughs> to the other kids. Right? As funny as he may be, the classroom is no place for it. <laughs> so for me, that's where it began. And to, to get that, that thing from my mom was one of those things like, man, she kept that all these years, you know, the date and everything done and all that stuff. And then that took me all the way back to my childhood of, hey, man, I've, I've always loved making people laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, even in class, even as a kid, that was just my thing. I just love making people laugh. And sometimes we get off track of our, our road to life and what we want to do with our lives. Because as a kid, you know, you I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. You know, you, you have those things as a kid. Me, I always wanted to be a comedian. I always knew I wanted to be a comedian. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere I got lost into um, uh, the street life of South Central, you know, growing up in there and and and, and getting caught up into to the gangs and the drugs. It's, it's, it's a way of life. People don't understand it. But when you're in the middle of it, it's become survival and it's nothing to understand. And it's now it's time to survive, you know, and, and growing up around gangs and stuff and that shit, that that right there will will put you in a, a different mind state. It's no time for jokes. Uh, I got put out when I was 15 years old. Um, and, and, you know, from then on, I knew life was real selling drugs and, and, and being in the streets and doing the things that I was, I was doing and became, um, very successful at it and, and was making serious, serious money. I'm not talking the average money. I'm talking serious money, six figure type money. Um, even though I made it in that game and making money off of that stuff. I, I remember one time sitting in my house, I, I had owned a house in Arizona. I owned a house and um, I owned a car wash, a laundromat. Uh, I had serious, serious money. And thinking, I would always would think about comedy. I was always thinking about, you know, people say that you, you, you're so funny, you blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, me being a street dude, I never really thought of it as a job. I just, 
I just like making people laugh and just always saying funny shit. And I remember sitting at the top of that world one day thinking like, damn, you know, I supposed to, I'm supposed to be doing something different with my life. You know? Were you entertaining the people you were dealing with in your... Yeah, you know, you 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 hang out with your street Illicit friends. activity. Yeah, you be out hanging out with your street friends. You know, for instance, you out, you know, we we call it balling. You out there balling with your friends. You out there, and, and you, you see people cracking up laughing, but you're being yourself, and you're not really trying to make people laugh, but you would just be out there just being yourself, you know, and people would be fucking laughing all day. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Are you so damn funny? Like, man, you know, you ain't thinking twice, you know, and that's the essence of a comedian. It's not to think twice. It's to just be yourself. And not to overthink comedy. So with that being said, you know, going through that type of lifestyle, and I remember at the pinnacle of that stuff and 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 being on top of the world in that life, you know, you're kind of like a rock star, you're kind of up there, you're kind of making all this money, you're doing all these things, but something's not right with your soul. Because the game of the of the drug game is to capture your soul. That's what it's about. It's about the capture, it's about capturing your soul, and you will never ever return to yourself. That's the object of it. And people don't understand. They say, well, how you, how you sell your soul? Well, that's, that's, that's the price you pay. Mm-hmm. And there's many ways to sell your soul. One, you can do something that you can never undo. You can, you can, you can do something that's just never going to set right with you. Never going to set right with you. You can do something behind money or drugs or something like that that'll never set right with you. That's how you lose your soul. And I started to see that happening to me. Because the more money you make, the more problems, as Biggie or whoever said it, the more problems you have. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's true. You start having real problems. You know, you know, people, I don't know if you ever had someone take money from you and you really have to decide whether this person live or die. Mm-hmm. I haven't had that issue in my life yet. <laughs> well, that's, that's a street, that's a real street problem, you know, because right now is your reputation is on the line. Right now, people know what this person has done and you grow up having that people having that fear of you and you don't do something about it. That kind of takes a little away from your reputation. Mm. You known as this tough dude and you, you know, everyone know who you are and streets are scared of you and people have this fear of you. You don't, you, you, if you don't do something about it, you're losing your reputation. And if you do do something about it, you're losing your soul. Lose, lose. It's lose, lose yeah. all around. So I have, I, I came across one of those situations where I didn't, uh, um, um, I didn't do what I should have did, which is a street no-no. You know, I should, I should have handled this dude, but something didn't let me do it. And that's when I knew I wasn't as strong of, of a street dude as I thought I was because I wouldn't do this one thing behind money, no matter how much money he took from me and he was, he was, he was a family member. Mm-hmm. So at that point, that was across the hotel. How old are you at this point? I, I was probably 20, 21, 22 years old. And I had all these businesses and all this money. So at that point in my life, I'd I always thought about comedy. I always, you know, people, and even my ex at the time, like you, you're so damn funny. I don't know why. And I always thought about it. How, how do you get into it? So I wind up, uh, a few years, feds come in and they take everything from you in that life and you lose everything and you, you go through that process of going in jail. And I believe at that point when, when I couldn't make that move, I started to lose everything. I started to understood that, okay, I'm a little weak in that area when it comes to that. Don't get me wrong, I'm tough as nails. But if I wasn't going to do that and blacken my heart, and I, then this ain't, the, this ain't the thing for me. Mm-hmm. Cause I, a little bit of me, I lost a little bit of me when I let that guy make it. So the Fed comes, I go to jail, me and my ex, we're going through the whole court thing and I'm sitting in jail and the judge said something to me. I don't know if you've ever been in federal court and state court, it's two different courts. The federal court uh, is way different. You call the judge, your magistrate. Now, I'm, I'm going to make this all relevant to comedy in a minute, but you, you, you call him your magistrate in a, in a, in a state court. It's just a judge, but a magistrate, he sits up high and it's just you, him, your lawyers, and it's just cold as hell in the federal court. State court is kind of crazy, family, people calling that, but it's just something about being in a federal court. And the judge looked at me and he looked at my record and he looked at me and he's seen all my record and I have all kinds of shit on my record. And he looks at me, he goes, young man, what have you been doing with your life? 
when somebody asks you a question like that, he put, he put everything aside. He put my record aside, and he just wanted to know. Like, here you are. You have all of this stuff going on, but then again, you don't have anything that really just that just makes sense. So you're in the middle. What 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 have you been doing with your life? So he thought at that point in time, what is he gonna do with me? And he said to me, okay, you know, I hope when you leave here, you make the right decision and be on the right side of the law when, we, when you make this decision. Now, at this point in my life, I'm thinking, okay, I could do something and, and not go down with what he's talking about. But this guy was talking to me like he was my damn father, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that shit kind of stuck with me the whole time. So I get out out of feds. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And at the time I lost everything, lost the house, lost the car, lost the wife, lost everything. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to get back on my feet. I'm going to do what I need to do. And in my days, we called a thing called cracking towns. We would go to a different city. We would take over town. LA dudes, that's what we're known for. We would go to another town. We just take over drug wise. So I'm, in New Orleans, uh, uh, I met this beautiful Italian girl that I'm that I'm married to. Been married to for 22 years. Um, back then, I, I had just met her. We were dating, knew her off and on, and I kind of asked God to bring me somebody in my life. And I prayed, and he, I hooked back up with my my wife now. His name is Jessica. Hooked up with her, so we we got together. We decided to to live in New Orleans, and uh, she was going to school at the time, and me still being a street dude, I'm trying to figure my way around this. I'm gonna make some money and. And, and, and how I'm going to crack another town is what we call it. You crack another town. So I get into uh, Louisiana. I'm down there trying to do my thing. I'm, um, I'm out there trying to hustle and still trying to figure this, this, this thing out, like how I'm going to get back to my status. And um, um, Had you moved there semi-permanently? I mean, semi-permanently. Yeah. Semi-permanently. Like I'm still in LA, but I'm trying to find another town to crack. And why New Orleans? Because of the... New, cuisine and new, rich new, history. <laughs> well, New Orleans was one of those things where that's where my wife went to school. She was going to she was going to UNO. We had uh, let me rewind that. Um, we had hooked up uh, previously before I went to jail, and it was just kind of like a uh, uh, we had met like a month or two, and she found out you know I was in a relationship at the time. She kind of like wasn't one of those type of girls like Nah, I can't be messing around with you. You got wife, you got kids. I can't be. I don't get down like that. I'm Italian. We don't, we don't mess around with other people's property and shit like that. Gave me the whole speech. So when I got, uh, uh, got in my situation, I, I had no one when I got out, you know, I How long were you in jail? I was in jail for two years. Oh my God. Yeah. It was crazy. I went through a, the whole federal court thing where they, you know, they held me and they were trying to, you know, trying to find out what to do with me because I was one of those guys that was under the radar. But then they clearly seen that I was a dude that was making some serious money and they fucking had to do something with me. Like, motherfucker, we're going to watch you until we bust you. One so guy two years me. in a federal prison. Yeah. And what, um, do you, did your sense of humor benefit you in there? Did you have a sense of humor at that point in your life? No, I didn't have, I didn't have any, I, I had, you know, when you go into a process where you're losing everything, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those periods in your tie, what they say, what they call it, a midlife crisis. You know, you're trying to, put all the pieces back together. You know, I it's abundance of things that I get into about I've lost, but basically a lot of stuff, you know, house, cars, wife, kids, a son, literally, you know, I had a two year old son that I lost, you know, drowned in my pool. Um, that my, the world was ripping me apart. And when I got out, it was one of those things that like, okay, that, question that the judge just it just was haunting my 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 conscience like what are you doing with your life you know and it's like what the hell am I doing with my life? so I, I'm out trying to get back on top streetwise I'm out there trying to get it and get that money and get back because that money you, you you could be just addicted as an addict uh, I don't know if you notice you have a certain type of money in your life it's just as bad as being on drugs because drugs is, a, is an addiction and so is money money is an addiction where you can't never get rid of and if you had it like I had it, it's an addiction that's going to last with your ass forever. So you can understand why when a, when a billionaire gets divorced, and they go, well, why a wife got the half half? Because, because she's accustomed to living a certain lifestyle. 
And it's the same thing with a, with a drug dealer when he loses everything. He's still accustomed to living a certain type of lifestyle. And he's going to forever try to get back to that lifestyle because that lifestyle is what he's accustomed to. So I was accustomed to a certain lifestyle and I wanted that lifestyle. So I'm out in the streets trying to get that. But I kept asking myself, what, are you, what the hell are you doing with your life? But this time, uh, even though my whole crew had got broken up, I said to myself, I go to New Orleans and I'm down there and I'm trying to put it back together again. And, you know, my wife, she was at, the, like I said, she was going to school out there at the time. So I kind of flew out there and kind of hung out. I was trying to peep things out and trying to figure my way around New Orleans. And um, she worked at a restaurant called um, Pat O'Brien's, I believe it's called. You ever heard of that? Sounds familiar. The home, the home of the hurricane. The, the famous hurricane. The hurricane, the drink. Right. Yeah. This is this. This is where it started. Right. She worked at that restaurant and she was putting herself through school. So I'm out there with her and I'm out there trying to do my little street thing. And um, it was the year the uh, Patriots played the. Um, the uh, Seahawks. No, no. Um, it was the Super the Bowl Raiders. Uh, Those are the two teams I know. <laughs> it was the year uh, the Patriots. It was the Green Bay played the Patriots. I think it was 96. It was that year. And the reason why I know it was that, that, that I remember that year is because someone kept saying it was going to be a million people downtown Bourbon Street. A million people. And I'm from South Central Los Angeles. I've never seen a million people in one spot before. I kept telling my little friends that were working for me out there, my little crew that I was trying to put together out there, they kissed the dog and they had talked with that Louisiana accent. Hey, dog, you need to go down to Bourbon Street. It's going to go down, man. It's going to be a million people in one spot. A million people in one spot. I was like, man, a million people. I'm thinking like I've never seen a million people in one spot before. I said, I got to go see this shit, right? Because, you know, even though my work, work, work down there, but I was too busy hustling in little back towns out there. So I said, all right, let me go down here and see a million people. So I get down there. I see I, uh, it, it's like Super Bowl weekend and it is bananas you can't even walk down there it's so many people it's just ridiculous so i'm walking and i'm down there and i see a guy do a little drug move only people from the streets will know this little move i see one of the doormen standing at the door and a, and, and a guy that's working for him walk by he drops a brown bag and he nods and points and the other guy looks at where he nodded and pointed and picks up another brown bag so what it happened was a guy dropped some money paid him and then he gave him his other work was like standing right across from him so this is the doorman so the doorman in New Orleans, they are the drug dealers. They're watching and they have people that work in the whole thing. And I'm thinking like, did I just see what I just thought I saw? Are, are they, they serving down here? Serving means that they're selling out here, like they're selling work, what, what they got. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, wait a minute, a million people. Wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. So I kind of walked around, saw some, some shady characters. You go talk to like a, an addict or something like that, that you can know who's an addict and what they're doing. You can, you got to have street eyes to spot the people I'm talking about. So I see this one dude and I kind of know, okay, he's probably out here trying to work and do what he's doing. I push up on him. Hey, what's up with what They got their work. What they doing down here? And he broke down what was going on. I was like, oh shit, they working like that out here? It's like, yeah, it's going down. So I'm on my way back and I see the blue blocker dude. If you're from Los Angeles, you know who the blue blocker dude is? You know who he is? Oh, literally a guy like the, the blue blocker guy. The blue blocker guy is the guy that used to be on Venice Beach. And he wore the blue blocker glasses. He sure. had the hat, a big fat black guy. He used to have a hat and he used to sing the blue blocker song. And he used to rap and he put the blue blockers on. Blue blockers. <laughs> Remember that? Vaguely. Glasses. Google it. Anyway. Um, so I see this guy. He's like a homeless guy. And he would follow all of the major events. So I see this guy. I'm like, what are you doing down here, bro? Don't you be on Venice Beach? Don't you, aren't you, don't you hustle at Venice Beach? He said, yeah, but I see him changing clothes. I happen to pack down one of those back roads and I see him changing clothes and he's changing into his bum outfit to go bay. He's a professional beggar and he's putting on his clothes. And I'm like, man, don't you, don't you, don't you be at Venice Beach, bro? I thought you was homeless. He said, homeless. So I put the kids through college through this shit. He said, it's a million people down here and I just want to get a dollar from each one. And I said, a million people. And they selling drugs out here. So I go, I find out what it was selling. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the biggest drug uh, dope spot in the world. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to get my crew together. I'm coming back with about five dudes from LA. We're going to take over some stuff down New Orleans. It's gonna be, we're going to take some stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting my plan together. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm taking no madness. I can feel my heart getting blacker. I'm saying to myself, I'm, anybody getting in my way, going to catch it. I ain't fucking around. Can I cuss on your show? 
Hell yeah. I said, I'm not fucking around. Anybody get in my way, I'm not having it. Me and my boys, we coming back. We're going to take a fucking corner out here and we don't give a fuck. We're going to take it. Let's do it. That's my mind thinking. I get in my car. I'm driving. I'm driving home, mastering my plan together. And mind you, while I'm getting these evil thoughts in my mind, I'm thinking about the judge. I'm thinking about the dude I'm talking about that, that got me for that money. And I let him ride. And I'm thinking about all of this shit. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not having that shit no more. I'm next motherfucker to do that is a dead man. That's what I'm thinking to myself. And I'm my I can feel my heart getting blacker as I'm thinking this shit. Because I'm I'm not playing this time around. I hit a bump and I had a Chevy Chevette. And now I'll make the comedy relevant. I had the Chevy Chevette. I hit a bump. I'm driving on a on, on, on a on a highway in New Orleans. I hit this bump. The radio comes on. And the radio says, if you think you're funny and you got what it takes, come on down to the Def Jam tryouts. I stop. I was like, fuck, that radio never worked. I had this car for two years. That radio never worked. So I pull over on the side of the road. And I'm like, why would that come on at this point in time? I mean, it's like right when I'm thinking about what the judge was saying. Young man, what have you done with your life? And that fucking radio came on and that commercial. I pull over. I tried to get the radio to come back on. It didn't come back on. Like, I did everything. I'm like, it never worked. (laughs) Why the fuck would it come on for a sec? Am I snap? It's one of those moments where you think you're talking to God and it gets kind of weird. And it's like, wait a minute now. Is God trying to talk to me or some shit? And I'm like, nah. I mean, I got out and I'm trying to do everything to get this radio to come back on because I, I remember what exactly what it said. If you think you're funny, you think what it got to take. You got what it takes. Come on to the Def Damn tryout at the East Bank, at the Play Lean Connection in the East Bank. I remembered it. But the fucking radio wouldn't come back on. I look up. It's a fork in the road. One way to my house, one way to the East Bank. I said, okay, shit is getting weird. I was like, all right, I've always been funny. People always told me that I was funny. I said, maybe this is God trying to talk to me. So I drive over to the East Bass. There wasn't like a blues um, guitar player at the crossroads? It could have been. (laughs) (laughs) Which (laughs) way will you take, son? (laughs) Which role will you take? That's kind of like it was that moment, for real. And if I had went, like I lived in Kenner, Louisiana. And my, my house was in Kenner, Louisiana. And... The East Bank is like to the right. I pondered for about 10 minutes. I said, you know what? Let me just go over there and check. Someone said, just go check. So I drive over to the show. I look at the show. It is packed. And once again, it's Super Bowl weekend. It's like East Bank is probably maybe about 10, 15 minutes away from Bourbon Street. So I drive over. The show is packed. It is like 300 people out there. And it is like crazy packed. And some said, just go to the door and, and tell them you want to do the tryouts. I was so street and hood. I didn't even know what comedy was called, right? I was so street and hood. I walked to the door and, you know, because I'm a boss, I don't walk like, you know, with fear. I walk with authority. I walk up to the door and say, hey, who, who running this shit? And the lady's like, uh, why? What's up? I said, I want to do the this, do this shit with the, with the guy on the stage. She said, the guy on the stage? Yeah, the, the, the motherfucker with the microphone. She said, oh, you're a comedian? I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm a comedian. She said, oh, yeah, well, come on in, you know, come on in. And then you want to try out, you got to, you know, you're you going you gonna, to uh, uh, sign this list. And then, you know, you go up and you do your thing. And as I'm walking by, the promoter was like, oh, you're a comedian, bro? It's like, yeah, he said, come on, let me take you over where the comedians are. So he took me over where the comedians are. And I see all of the comedians on the side. Some are smoking weed, some are drinking, some are, uh, 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 you know, uh, trying, they're getting their nerves, rehearsing their act, you know, the shit the comics do. We sit on the sidelines, we're, we're rehearsing our act. And I see one dude writing his notes down, trying to remember what the fuck he's going to say. And they're, they're all super duper paranoid. Then I see uh, Bruce Bruce. Uh, Bruce Bruce at the time was the South King. He was like the man, you know? And you see him on television. We seen him on like, uh, at the time it was Def Jam. Comic View wasn't out yet. Uh, yeah, Comic View was out. We have seen Bruce Bruce and all of them. I'm like, oh my God, this this dude was on, on TV, you know? But I'm, I'm I'm rich thug. I still got that mentality. I'm like, <laughs> give a fuck about these niggas, right? I care who they are. But I had that attitude and that swag about myself. Like, whatever. Right? I'm here to see what God is. Why is God fucking with me right now? So I'm there. I've seen all these dudes. And one dude was like, man, you want to drink? I was like, nah, man, I don't, I don't drink. Cause I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. So one dude was out smoking weed, man. I, I got to get high before I go on stage. And I, that's gonna make me funny. I, I had a dude actually said that in front of me. 
So I'm like, damn, you know, well, how does it work? You know, how does these dudes get up there and do that? So I go into the bathroom and I made a pact with God. And I said to him, I've always kept God in my heart. And so my uncle told me when I was 10, he said, I don't care what you want to be in life. You'll be all right if you just keep God in your heart, nephew. So I, I always had him in my heart. And I always said to myself, okay, you know, I'm going to keep him in my heart. I'm in the bathroom and I'm praying. I said, you know, I'm going to make a pact with God. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I said, God, I'm going to go on that stage. And I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. If it comes out funny, you know, if I, if, if, if I make a fool of myself, okay. You know, them, them street corners is mine. But if this is what you want me to do, you got to let me know right here, right now. I gave God an ultimatum and I was serious and he knew I was serious. So I walk out. Uh, the promoter comes over to you, says, okay, dude. We're about to get started. Let's 300 black people in this movie. <laughs> you know, most comics are afraid of black crowds. Me, you know, at the time I was so hood and so swag. I don't give a fuck. I'm like, all right, whatever. So he said, all right, dude. Okay. So the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, what do you call this? The, uh, rookie comics, the, um, the open micers. That's what he said. He said, open micers, y'all going to go up first. Y'all open micers. What the hell? What is he talking about? He's like, and you are first. I said, I'm first. He's like, yeah, I'm thinking that I can just watch a couple of comics, kind of figure out how they do it, and I'll do that. So I was like, all right, no problem, whatever. 300 people, not a fucking problem. And then my mind said, do, I said, what the hell am I going to say? And it said to me, do what the last time you had people laughing about, do that. Remember the last thing you had dudes falling out about, do that. And that was um, this thing in, um, um, and New Orleans, they got this bounce music. You ever heard of New Orleans bounce music? You know, you ever noticed? You know they got their own music. They got bounce music, and it's like only they fucking understand it, right? Because if you're from LA and you in a club and you hear this shit, it's just shit they understand. And you, you, the club would be knocking like they had the song called. Actually, the song's called Google this shit. It's called "Bitch Get Off Me" <laughs> by a rapper by the name of Chicky Black. This was a theme song, and they play this club. They didn't have to have a dance partner. The club would go nuts, and the, and the chant would go, "Bitch, bitch, 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 get off me! How, 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 get off me!" And the club would be these motherfuckers would go ignorant. And I'm the only person in LA looking at these motherfuckers like, "What the fuck is this girl talking about? How, 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 how?" And they go nuts, right? And one time at my, uh, 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 a guy had worked for me. He had got killed. So I'm at his funeral at his wake. And, and one of the dudes, we outside eating. And one of the dudes was playing that song, Bitch, Bitch, Get Off Me. And it's the last thing I had said to somebody. And I had everybody laughing. So I'm standing out there sitting on the car. And the, the mosquitoes seemed to only attack me. Right? They didn't attack them. They only attacked me. I guess I was fresh meat from California or whatever. And, and take notes, too. If you're ever in New Orleans, don't wear cologne. They love that shit. So... I'm gonna have to You'd be fun. eating live right now. Right. I'm there. They, like they, they everywhere. So I'm smacking myself and I smack myself. I was like, bitch, get off me. And they fell out laughing. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? <laughs> so I said, I'll say that. And just to see what happened. 300 people, they introduced me. I go out, I grab the microphone. I go, uh, you know that rapper y'all got out here called Cheeky Black? The crowd was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. I say that whole, bitch, 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 get off me. I said, she must be talking about these goddamn mosquitoes y'all got out here. Bitch, get off me. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, right? I was like, they fucking, one laugh, they took off. I was like, fuck. And then my mind said, oh, shit, you better start thinking. And I started talking about, say, what the fuck am I going to say next? I start talking about the street life. So I start talking about shit that I knew from the streets crackheads uh, slanging and dealing with these people and all that it just it started just coming talking about crackheads talking about street life and they started fucking falling out laughing I'm murdering the stage right I have it's like I stepped out my body and I watched myself go I could see myself performing right and I'm killing and the guy the, the, the promoter he's tapping the side of the stage like motherfucker your time is yeah, up how much time did you have I ran the light the first time out too sure. I, I was supposed to get 10 minutes so I did like about 20. That's I, insane. 10 minutes for an open mic. First time up. First time up. First touch the mic. And you killed. And did you see the irony of you taking the bullet the first time? I, it was no fear at that time yeah. because at that point I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect and I didn't care. I just wanted to deal with this situation that was happening to me. And I wanted to answer if that's a call to God, I wanted to know. 
because the radio thing put me in that state of mind. Like, what the fuck just happened? And it was one of those things, right? And to 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 be in that place, though, while I was out of my, uh, an outer body experience, I've had that one other time. I had that when I got shot. I got shot uh, uh, in what year was that? 90, 90, 89, I got shot six times. I got shot in my leg, bullet hole right here, right here, right here. I even have the nine-millimeter slug still lodged in my arm. Did I show you that one time? Mm. I still had that, that, that lug. See that bullet hole? See that's that? an intense case of the Mondays. Yeah, that's a bullet. See that bullet? <laughs> See that bullet? That's a bullet right Wait, there. can I touch that? Yeah, go ahead. You, you feel that? Oh, my that is God. A, that is a nine-millimeter slug, bullet. right? So your two out-of-body experiences came when you took bullets. When, when I got shot yep. and I'm laying on that ground, I had that same out-of-body experience that I had on stage. It's like a calmness. If you ever had it and anybody know what I'm talking about, it's one of those, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a real piece. It's like if you ever went parasailing. Look, when I got shot, I was doing every fucking thing known to man after that. I, wanted, I tried parasailing. I bungee jumped. I did You're the first person that's ever compared getting shot to parasailing, I think. Peace. <laughs> Calmness, it is the ultimate peace. When, when you cross over, it is like, that's what the doctor said. He said, I die and I crossed over. And it's just like parasailing. That's I I I the only way I can explain it. It is such, you just hear, you hear shit else. And it's that calmness. So that same thing I had on that night on stage, it was that calmness. I wasn't afraid. I just was in the moment. And I lived in that moment and I just was letting it go. I didn't give a fuck what I was saying. It was just happening. And, and it was something that I wasn't in control of. I was just the vehicle of it. And when the guy was like, motherfucker, get your ass off stage. I look, I like, oh, oh shit, okay. So I stepped back and I walked off the stage. I was so fucked up that I was in shock. Like, what the fuck just happened? Did I just do that? People going crazy. Ah, you funny. Oh, Comedians coming to me. Oh, man, you so good. Funny. Ah, da, da, da. Who's your name? And I was so stupid at the time. I'm going to show you a card. Next time I see you, I'm going to show you this fucking card. They asked me what my name was, my stage name. I didn't even know what my stage name was. I said Funny Bone. <laughs> I, I couldn't think of shit else. So for a few years in, 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 in New Orleans, they were, they were calling me the Funny Bone because I said that was my name, Funny Bone. I, did, I just threw out some shit. I said, Funny Bone. And so dudes was calling me Funny Bone, right? So, uh, yeah, Funny Bone, you next. Blah, blah, blah. That was some funny shit, man, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing what they said. I'm trying to process what the fuck just happened. So the, a little bit longer. So the guy said to me, E, he said, he said, he said hey, man, look, we got another show. We want you to do the next show. But I'm still outside trying to process this shit. I'm like, okay, cool. He said, we got 300 more people that's going to come in. We're going to put you on the next show, but I'm going to put you up third because you smoke like about three comics. I was like, what the fuck? Okay, all right, boo. No, no, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's cool, dude. He's like, all right. So they let one audience out. They let another one in. I look in this particular audience, they got like, 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 uh, you know, remember Master P first started? Mm-hmm. He had a group called True. Right? You're, 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 you remember your history about Master P? This was his, this one, he was still in New Orleans. So he had his group called True, and all I'm wearing True shirts on. They got the jewelries on. I kind of noticed because they street dudes, and I'm street dude, and I'm noticing these niggas up front. They got the bottles popping, they sitting up front. I automatically noticed that when they were lo- loading the audience. Like, why am I identifying with these dudes? So something that's like, pay attention. So the audience is in there. It's getting packed. And I see Master P and them. And they all popping their bottles. They got their girls. And they laughing. And these motherfuckers is giving comics the blues. Right? So every comic is going to the stage. They are heckling them. And I mean, they're funnier than the fucking comics. So it's one. And I'll never forget him. I'll show you on my phone where he hit me up on Facebook. His name is Lucius Black. This dude was right before me. He went up. And he, um, I'm, he, he was about as black as this table. See this table? Yeah, <laughs> very saw, black table. B- very black table. This dude was so black, he looked like he got on a skin ski mask. I mean, like, you can walk into him if you're not careful, right? <laughs> I mean, if you sprinkle salt on his face, he looked like the stars, right? So he was next. And I remember he had on his red suit, and he is black as shit with his red suit on. So Master P and him, they done murdered, like, maybe two comics, right? And they waiting on the next one. And he went out, and... 
he couldn't even get a word out because he was about to handle him. And one dude in Master P group stood up and said, motherfucker, you look like a brake light. <laughs> the house came down. People were going nuts. And I'm on the sidelines saying, wait a minute now. We can talk. We can talk about the audience. We can bag on them dudes. They was like, you better. Right. Bruce Bruce was like, motherfucker, you better. I was like, oh, shit, no problem. Because that's what I'm very good at. That right there, I take with pride. That right there is my thing. That's what I was known for in high school. That's what I was known for in the streets. That was my thing. Going back and forth, I don't think there's nobody could outjaw me in that. I was like, oh, shit, okay, no problem. So when I went out, I didn't even take time. I just went in. Boom, fearless. I'm murdering. We're going back and forth, me and the dude. I'm murdering this dude. Master P and him are crying because I'm killing his boy. They, they like, oh, dog, this nigga ain't playing. Right? So the dude got so mad at me, he took a he took a wad of money and he threw it at me. He said, shut your broke ass up. And I had wads in my pocket. I'm like, thanks, motherfucker. So I took his money. I'm scraping all his money off. The show was over by now because I done smashed him. So I got my money. I'm scraping all my money. And I put it up and I looked at him. I said, thanks, motherfucker. And reached out my pack and pulled out a knot and took his money and put it with mine. Thanks, motherfucker. And they was like, oh, Master P was like, oh, that nigga got money too. Oh, shit. <laughs> right? Because I was a baller too. So I'm like, all right. What the fuck just happened? There's another one of my talents that God was showing me. At this point, I'm fucking in my mind. It's just, just like gone. Gone. I walked from the East Bank to the French Quarters, which is about a, you know, uh, and the car is about a 15 minute ride. So you can imagine how long it is on feet. I left my car there, but I'm just so fucked up that I, I had to go tell my, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I had to go tell her what the fuck just happened. Cause I couldn't believe it. I left, I left the show and everything. I was fucked up. Cause I had to get out of there and process what the fuck just happened. So I walked up and I'm telling her, I'm like, Oh my God, I, I think I found my calling in life. Oh shit. Right. So, I go to tell her, I was like, you know what? We're going to go back next week. Uh, uh, I think they're having it again. They're having the tryouts, but it was after they did a weekly comedy show there. Because Super Bowl was gone then, and the crowd is really gone now. It's the normal house crowd there. So I go back the next week, and this is where the shit got humbling, right? So I go back the next week, and I got my wife with me, my girlfriend Jessica at the time. She's sitting in the audience. And I'm like, yeah, watch this shit. So I go back up on stage, and the dude introduced me, uh, the comedian Shucky Ducky. Remember him? Yeah, I remember Shucky. I'm not, no. This, this motherfucker looked like a gay Malcolm X. No no pun, no offense to anybody else, but Shucky Ducky wear glasses and he was just like one of those black dudes that was just like very feminine, but he would do a, 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 a chant. Shucky Ducky quack quack and the crowd would go nuts. Right? Yeah, Shucky Ducky quack quack. Right? That, that's what he would do. And the crowd would go nuts. I go out. Sounds like he's from the Borscht Belt. Man. Shucky Ducky. Old Google Jewish man. Shucky Ducky quack quack. This dude would do that shit and the crowd would go nuts. You feel me? He looked like Malcolm X. Like a little sweeter version of Malcolm X. Note anyway. to Andrew that maybe if we find that track, we can put it in there. <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> Shucky ducky quack quack. That was his hook line. So he would do that crowd go nuts. He was hosting the show. I come out and I bomb. So now you're two for three. I'm two for three. I'm, I'm two and one. And it was one of those bad bombs too. It was one of those bonds where you sit at the audience for a minute and no one is laughing and the, the janitor just keeps mopping. <laughs> He's not stopping looking. Like, uh, <laughs> like, oh, okay, all right. But I took it on the chin and I thought to myself, that's the worst that could happen. And I remember saying to myself, that's it? I just got to get better? It's like, all right, God, you got to bet. And I walked out of there. I completely left the street life alone about maybe about a, a week after that. Because as I, I'm the type of dude, once I get into something, I'm very serious about it. I study it. I understand everything. I went in. I went, I went to, I immediately went to work. I went to start studying comedy. I started reading about every comedian I could think of. I already knew my history of comedy, but I went in depth and I tried to find every comment that I can think of. And I really, people would understand this, is that I understood that it was a struggle. Every comment had that one common denominator that they struggled to do this, that they sacrificed something 
to be a comedian. And that's when comedy had the real, real comedians. I mean, I mean, I studied them all. I mean, everybody from Bob Newhart to Fatty Arbuckle to Richard Pryor to Lenny Bruce to you name them. I studied them. And I don't mean I just studied them. I went into their lifestyle. I dug up as much stuff as I can think of. We didn't even have the internet back then. Mm -hmm. So I was doing it with the library. I was in a li My wife would go to school for four or five hours a day. I would be in a library four or five hours a day, pulling up comics, finding, you know, doing the history, find out what they were about and, 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 and just really getting into it. And then it was just one of those things that I just really got fascinated about. And I understood that I couldn't mix the life. I couldn't have the street life and do this at the same time because I wouldn't be struggling. I wouldn't have that, that thing that, that, that every comic had and every comic had that. I mean, you think about it, every one of them had it. Lenny Bruce struggled with the court systems and drugs and all of that to, 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 to be, I call him the, um, the Martin Luther King of comedy because he was the one dude that, that actually got up there and, 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 and said what he wanted to say just so we can have the right to say what we want to say. Absolutely. Went to jail for it. Yeah. Got back out, went back on stage again and did it again. Talking about freedom of speech. That man is the Martin Luther King comedy. So I went, I went that in depth. I went the in depth of how um, Harper Marx could talk but yet he stuck to being silent because that's what he did. He was a physical comic. He's one of my favorite physical comics of all times because he would, he would have to play, he would be in a trio with the three and couldn't speak, but had to be physically funny. So I knew I wanted to have his physical. Uh, people will say do Red Skelton, but Red Skelton, you know, that's, that's what he was known for. And he, and he, you know, when it's just you and you creating the whole scene, okay, you, 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 it, you pretty much set to do what you need to do. But Harpo had to be there and he had to be that punchline all his own. I think you're the first person with a, uh, a bullet in their arm talking about Red Skelton. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how much I love it though, man. That's how much I really love comedy. And I'm not saying it like the average comedian. I really, I love all comics. I don't care what you are. I don't care what your race is, what your gender is, what your sex is. I love every comedian that ever, did this or done this. And I've learned so much from every comic. I ain't gonna lie. I went in a few years ago uh, uh, when I worked at the comedy store years, years ago. I'm sorry, not a few years ago, years ago when I worked at the comedy store, they had uh, uh they had gay night. And, and I'm thinking, Missy said, Eric, you're going to work to uh, the, uh, the main room is going to be gay night. I'm like, gay night. I got to work gay night. She said, yes, you're going to work gay night. I was like, gay comedians. I was like, cause this is my first time hearing this shit. I never it, it didn't cross me, but then it didn't. It was like, okay, fuck, I gotta work gay night, fuck it. So I actually was being so fucked up that I would stand, I would work, I work, I'm working the door, but my back to the stage. Like, I wanna hear this shit. And every gay comedian that went up, one after another, got me laughing. I wasn't seeing anything but hearing comedy. And one after another got me. I'm laughing. Next thing I know, I'm fully turned, engaged, fucking laughing like everybody in the fucking audience. And one of my favorite ones, I, I got to remember his name. He died years ago. He died of AIDS back in the uh, early 90s. But he hit me with this one-liner and I was on the floor. I, was, I, I wanted this motherfucker autograph when he got off the stage because he was so fucking funny. He said, um, uh, what was that line he said? He said, oh, some of my friends asked me, they asked me all the time. They said, hey, um, um, they asked me, have I ever kissed a parakeet? And I was like, nope, but I kissed the cockatoo. <laughs> I was on the floor, bro. I was like, oh, hell no. Nah. And for me at that point, I, 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 it, comedy, you, it's, 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 it's like water, man. It's whatever you put it in. And, and we, we, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's whatever you put it in. It's, it's not about anything other than the pure joy of laughter. And well, it's that common denominator. And, you know, working at this club mm -hmm. and being exposed, you know, I came from a, a much different comedy world, like the al mm -hmm. alternative comedy world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the club world is so different, but I've been right. exposed to so many comedians and types of comedy that I, I never would have seen. Right. Right. Including you. Getting to know you has been, and, and you just, you're so effusive with your, your personality and, and right. you have a glow about you. Right. And Thank you've been through so much. I've been through, I've been through hell and back, bro. And I, God told me it was going to take long. You tell me it's going to take long and I, I'm, I'm not in a hurry to be famous. I just want to do his work. And so where, so you, you do your third show, it's, uh -huh. you bomb. And then at what point do you come back to LA and just and really go for it? 
what well um i do my third show and i bomb right um i thought immediately as you know as i as i as i started to to get into comedy and think of the comedians and different type of comedians that were out there um i run across eddie griffith right this guy tells me say hey man you're going to be performing with eddie griffith you know um i want to put you on this show and I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be on the show, man. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up for Eddie Griffith, right? And um, at the time, Michael Jackson was going through the, um, where he just had his first kid, I believe. And I thought I wrote the ultimate Michael Jackson joke, right? Because my wife would tell you I was the most disciplined comic you could come across. No one could tell you that they were more disciplined than me because I would write jokes all night long and be, and be, to papers everywhere. So I thought I wrote this amazing Michael Jackson joke, right? I thought this was the shit. And my Michael Jackson joke was, when Michael Jackson get older and the kid get older, how in the hell he gonna explain who's the guy on the album cover? He's like, daddy, who's this? That's me. So I went through the whole little thing. I thought that was some shit. I did that joke like, bam, yeah. And it was about two minutes. <laughs> and Eddie Griffith do his whole, Michael, I think it was off his Voodoo album. He did his whole Michael Jackson joke. And I'm on the side at the Sanger Theater, 3,000 people, watching him murder 3,000 people. I mean, like, this one, Eddie was at his, like, at his, yeah, at his best. And I'm like, I'm floored, right? I had that little bit of arrogance in me. Like, I'm funny, fuck that. You know, every comic, new one have that. You funny than everybody, right? And it's a humbling experience when you're not. So I go to talk to Eddie after the show. I go, hey, man, look, you know, I humble myself. Ask him some advice. I said, hey, man, can you give me some advice? He said, listen. He said, you need to get the hell out of New Orleans. I said, well, I need to see you need to be in L.A. or New York. The typical thing headliners tell every comic. You need to be in L.A. or New York. And I said, well, I'm from L.A. He said, well, then you need to get your ass back there. He said, you know the difference between an L.A. comic and a New York comic? And I said, I mean, he said, L.A. comic and a, a New Orleans comic? I said, no. He said, you, you, you saw your Michael, you said, you know your Michael Jackson joke, right? I was like, yeah. He said, you've never seen mine. I said, nope. He said, I know. He said, you see the difference in it? I said, yeah. He said, that's the difference in it. I was like, okay. So I told my wife, I said, hey, we got to go back home. <laughs> so we packed up the truck and the cat and we drove home. And I think it was a mistake because my advice to comics when you come here, you know, you don't come here to get ready. You come here when you're ready. And the, uh, uh, on this note, the, the, I was so bold when I came here that I, I, I had a chance to uh, drive the head of William Morris. I forget his name, but he gave me the best advice ever. That William just, Morris. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the head, Mr. whatever his first name is, I was driving limos. So I picked him up and, you know, my, um, the limo company knew that I was a comedian at the time. And they said, Eric, hey, you're going to be driving ahead of William Morris. You know, you're going to, you know, he's one of our top clients. I'm putting you on this, but maybe he could help you out in your career. He said, but don't ask him until you drop him off. He said, but try to be funny, but don't try to be too funny. You know, my, they all nervous for me. They want to help me out. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. I was probably seven years in, right? Look how bold I am. I had my package ready. The, the shit was so, so long ago. That's when packages came with the, uh, the VHS. <laughs> When you have your package with be with the VHS and the and the whole little envelope of shit, that shit was wrapped in an envelope with my little VHS player. So I'm thinking like, when am I going to give it to him? So I'm talking to him, driving him to the airport. I went and picked him up in Mulholland Drive somewhere, driving him to the airport. And I'm being as funny as I possibly can without trying to interrupt his business. He gets out. I hand him the package and he hit me with the realest shit ever. I said, uh, you know, hey, Mr. Morris, here's my, here's my package. You know, I'm a comedian too. And blah, 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 blah. He said, whoa, wait, young man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I'm the head of William Morris. Number one. A talent agency in the world. He said, when you're ready, we'll find you. Mm -hmm. That's when I stopped chasing big name people. That's when I stopped chasing big companies. That's when I said, just let me just sit back, evaluate my career. Let me find out where I'm at. And I went through a paradox that most comics will go through. You will go through that, uh, as they say, find your voice. And the hardest thing for me was to leave street comedy and do universal comedy because I was set on being a universal comedian. And um, to me, a universal comedian is a person that can perform anywhere. 
you don't put a label on him. You don't, oh, he's a black comic. Oh, he's a white comic. Oh, he's a Mexican comic. I didn't want to be that. I want to be a comic that can make anybody laugh. I want to be that comic. And that's what being true to myself was. Because even though I'm from the hood, born street, born raised, you can't take my street cred from me. I earned that. You know, but I'm also a father. I'm also a husband. I'm also changing. I also don't live in a hood. I also make money. I live in a beautiful neighborhood. I live in fucking uh, 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 Corona. I live in Eagle Glen. I don't know if you know where Eagle Glen is. Everybody on my block is damn near millionaires except me. But that's okay. I'm on a block. Mm-hmm. Right? And and that's me changing. And I had to make a decision because even before I got there, my life was changing. And so was my comedy. But when I go back and try to do street comedy, street dudes and people in the hood, people that know me or people that don't know me, my, even my family look at me strange. And it's hard for me and it hurts me because I, I, I don't want to lose them, but I got to be true to myself. My wife is Italian. My kids are, are mixed. I'm being true to myself because my comedy reflects that. And if you're not changing with me, that's okay. But I'm not going to keep doing the street shit and the hood shit if I'm not living it. Because I'm going to be true to comedy before I be true to anything else. Because this is what I do. That's your art. Exactly. Eric Blake. Yes, sir. Hey, Goosebumps. This is one of my (laughs) favorite episodes. Oh, stop it, bro. (laughs) No, it's so inspiring, your your story. And so um, you're seven years in. Mm Mm-hmm. You're starting to find your voice. And then what are the gatekeepers at this point? I mean, and what are some of the, the milestones they're starting to hit as a comic? Oh, oh, it's beautiful because one of the milestones for me right now is that I'm at the point in my career where I can't be denied. If you can look at my comedy and look at me and look at what I, I don't expect every agent or gatekeeper to know where I come from, I just want you to, if you do know me and you do know my name and you see the change and you see the, 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 the love in my comedy that I put into it, you know, that's a milestone for me because now you respect what I've done. You're like, okay, he's ready. And that's what I meant by it when I first came here was a mistake because most of Hollywood had to see me get ready. Right. And that's a mistake. You don't want to come here and get ready. You know, you want to be ready. You want to come here and you want them to know who is that guy. And more importantly, you want to know who that guy is. You don't want to, you don't want to defer from none of that, that it would be a mistake to come here and think that, you know, seven years in your comedy, you ready and you the man and, and all of that shit. No, you please, you're scratching the surface of this. And I, I would want comedy to get back to that. And I think comedy is going to get back to that, get back to comedians that work hard and, 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 and discover their voice and let the talent speak, not the talent agencies. Mm-hmm. Hey, I like that dude. He's funny. I could do this with him. I can do that with him. No, he got a hundred thousand followers. Yeah. Okay. But can he follow me? Can he be as real as I am on stage? Can he, can he open up his heart and say what's going on? Does his life, what he's talking about behind the, the 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 YouTube hits and videos, is it reflecting who he is as a person? Does he walk in McDonald's and pull the and, and take the green lipstick and whatever the hell he's doing on YouTube? Does he do that just that's because of who he is? No, he's doing that because he wants followers. I do this because this is who I am. Well, it also speaks to longevity. I mean, you know, having success in in small doses and not to take anything away from mm-hmm. YouTube stars that are having. There are moments, and they're, but they're, they can be a flash in the pan. And same, same with comedy. It's, it's when you speak from your your heart, and once you do find your voice, that's mm-hmm. what builds a career right. over decades. That's what it, that's what it does. Yeah, it does. Um, YouTube and, and stand up, they could coexist, but stand up is an old, old, old profession. And I love the greats. They did it right, man. They did it right, bro. They didn't. They didn't take no shortcuts. You know, they they did it right. And if you if 
you just take away the money and you take away the fame and you just take five of the top comics now, would they still be on the same playing field? Would they still be on the same level? Who would stand out more because of their humor and what they're talking about? It, it, it wouldn't be very many of them. It wouldn't be very many of them. I agree. I mean, absolutely. There, there is such a small number of people that can really connect at the level that you're talking about. Right. And so for you, what's, what, what's the next phase of your career now? Like what, um, how do you get to that next level? How do you get to be Red Skelton? Ah, well, you know, <laughs> um, just keep staying true to who you are. And you get one of the doors that open up. And even if it don't open up, you kick it down. And once you get in there, you let your talent do the talking. You say, okay, yeah, maybe I don't have a million followers. Right? I maybe don't have a lot of people that's watching me doing stupid shit on YouTube. But I guarantee you, you put me in your business. And you put me on the right playing field. I'll I, I make a name for myself. I, I definitely can hang with any top comedian in the country. Any, name the top five right now. Put me on the show with them. And I'm, I'm not going to be a problem for them. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm going to come and blow them off the stage. But I guarantee you, when I leave the stage, some fans are going to follow me. And I'm like, I don't know what that other motherfucker was talking about, but I like that dude. <laughs> that dude talked about real shit. That dude, you know, Kept it 100. That dude said stuff that I went through. That dude went through some shit. That dude is funny as hell. He talked about his wife and his kids. He ain't afraid to talk about his wife and kids in front of an audience of, of women and don't care who's listening. You know, because I'm not trying to win women over just to get them to like me. I'm trying to, I want a woman that's going to come to her show and bring her husband like, you need to hear this fool. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's the woman I want. I want the couples. I want the, I want the, I want the people that nobody is, 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 um, Speaking for. And that's just every everyday Joe doing everyday shit. A man taking care of his family. That's why. And it, the rest will take care of itself. God got me and I'm not worried about it. Clearly. Yeah. I'm Clearly not worried about it. It's been an amazing path. So what's coming next? I know you got a big date here at the Hollywood Improv. Yeah. The Universal Comedy Showcase. It was one of those things, man, where, okay, I, I finally got some ears and some people wanting to hear what I have to say. Want to give me a shot. And that's one of those moments where I've been working hard for, you know, I've been working hard for it. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, got other up offers on the table. Uh, got a couple of people that are trying to sign me. And so I'm not really in a rush to to take those offers. Um, you know, like I said, I've earned it to this point. And, and out of the three deals that I got, one of them is going to gonna take me to the next level. And I know that for sure. But I just want to Check out everything that's out there for me right now before I make a decision of which which company I'm going to go with, and that's beautiful to have. I'm like, oh, I want to sign you, I want to sign you. I like these, I like the things you're doing, I like things you're talking about. Um, um, so that's a beautiful thing to have that uh, have that opportunity in front of me. So I'm not sure which one I want to go with yet, but we'll see. Yeah, um, I mean, you've already accomplished so much in your career, and you you um you to me are a shining example of someone that. Um, you know, I didn't know before I got here uh, and there was hundreds of comics that I didn't know. And you've, you had comedy central special comedy central presents and mm -hmm. lots of credits. And, um, but the reason you're here now, the reason you're, you're headlining the improv is, you know, talent number one, but number two, being a genuinely, you know, good, thoughtful, um, uh, person, um, that I think has the right approach as far as, you know, dealing with a booker, um, you know, and never, coming off as entitled and just appreciating every opportunity. Oh, yes. Whether it's in the lab or in the main stage or, or whenever it is, you've, you've always been very humble. Yeah, I, I respect your job. I respect what you got to go through because, you know, some people, man, they think that they, and we are an entitlement generation. They, they think that just because you get on stage and you're funny, you're entitled to be, the doors need to open up for you. All you have to do is fucking work hard. And the doors are open themselves. 
And that's it. No matter how long it takes you. Um, someone said to me I, one day, a couple years ago, I was thinking about giving up. I'm like, man, I need to quit. I'm so tired of the business and, and all, that, all the bullshit I have to go through to get in this business. And someone said to me, man, you ain't a lifer in this. And I thought about it. Yeah, I am a lifer. And this is what I'm going to do until the rest of the, I, until I'm done with life. Until, until God tell me something else. And when you treat other people in this business right, I believe it'll come back to you. Like me, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I love everybody. I don't, I don't want to, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not the dude to fuck with, but if you're my friend, guess what? You got somebody that's cool as fuck and be like, Hey, e, I got a problem with somebody. And if I can handle it in a way that I can handle it, I'll, I'll try to handle it for you. <laughs> but still, that's a good thing to have. It's a cool dude. It's just, ain't with all the bullshit. Ain't with the Hollywood shit. I ain't going to try to press you, uh, 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 to get you to do something for me that I didn't earn. Or, or 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 that you can't do beyond your powers because that's what people want to do. They, I'm funny. You need to put me on. And they in that quick hurry to be famous. I'm not in a hurry to be famous. I don't give a shit about the fame. I've had money. I've had all. That. I'm I'm here because this is something I love to do. I'm here just because you know, my kids have uh, uh, they they blessed to see me do this and they love that I do this. Um, my wife has, has has endured so much to let me do this. And and when I do get to that point where I can take care of them. That right there will be the ultimate, I did that. So I don't look at my career as what I'm doing. I look at my career as why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, that's a perfect way to, I think, to end this this conversation. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, bro. Where where else can people find uh, anything about you? I know you have a, a viral YouTube video right now. Yeah, I have a viral video out called uh, How to Tell Your White Friends, How to Teach Your White Friends to Say the N-Word to Your Black Friends, <laughs> which is a very controversial video, <laughs> over 55 million views and growing. Uh, check that out. Uh, also, you can catch me at uh, ComedianEricBlake.com, which is my website, and tell you all my dates and, and stuff like that. Or you can check me out at the Hollywood Improv, October uh, 14th, Friday night, Comedy Showcase, me, Kevin Miller, Heather Brown, and my man, Mike Kento. Man, it's going to go down. It's going to be a nice night, man. And 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 it's going to be a good blessing to be on stage with them. Absolutely. Well, as I end every show, All right. I will say this. Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Be undeniable. And be cool as fuck always. I think... Uh, you get that as much as anyone. Yes, sir. Thank we, you, man. We, we kind of covered all those things in the last hour. Um, well, I look forward to seeing you here soon. And thank you again. Thank you for having me, Jamie. God bless. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network. The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.